following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. This morning is our last sermon in Jeremiah until the end of the summer. So we're going to be studying both 14 and 15 together. Next week we're going to take a one-week hiatus and consider the office of church membership and re-examine our duties as members of the Lord's Church together. And then for the remainder of the summer, we're going to continue in our several year-long journey of going through the Bible together. A couple years ago, we started in the very first part of the Bible called the Pentateuch, those first five books of the Bible. We've done one sermon each, making our way through uh, last summer through the historical narratives of the Old Testament. And we're going to pick up where we left off there and study the wisdom literature together this summer, and then make our way into the major prophets, of which Jeremiah is a part, but since we're studying him this year, we'll leave him off the list. So if you'd like to bone up on your reading a little bit, start with Job and make your way through the wisdom literature, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and then start reading the major prophets. And I think by the time we're done with the summer, you'll have read it all uh, if you're following along. Of course, we'll have sermon cards in a schedule available for you when we get there. Let's begin with prayer. Father, thank you for your word. This morning we are hungry, God, in need of the nourishment your word provides. We may not know that we are hungry. So God, I pray that as we hear the word and as we've sung songs and we stir our hearts and our minds, attention and affections, God, that we would become aware of the lack of sustenance this world provides for our souls, and we would feed, Lord, feast on your grace and on your word, that it would fill us and nourish us, that we would be full and fulfilled. Father, we ask now for the remainder of our time to be useful and edifying in the purpose of equipping us, that we would be corrected by your Spirit where we need to be corrected, that what I would preach this morning would be what each of our hearts need to hear for the good of this church and for your glory. We pray, God, that we would see the value in turning aside from the idols of the world and remembering our true purpose and identity in Christ and that he would be indeed our true and most ultimate treasure and the source of our delight and our joy. So much God has to be taken down before we can arrive properly at a place where we can be built up in our faith by this. And so I pray by your spirit, would you do this? We love you as always, God, and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jeremiah chapter 14 and 15 this morning. We're going to read a little by little as we pay attention and as we study. We won't read 14 and 15 consecutively in the beginning as we normally do. Chapters 14 and 15 are a dialogue with God on the part of Jeremiah and on the part of Judah. And God's response 
in conversation with them. And the dialogue centers around the nature of God's judgment. Now, if you've been with us so far in the book of Jeremiah, you know that a major theme of the book is judgment. You can't get away from it. And we have many more chapters ago in which the central theme is going to be judgment. So this dialogue here is about the nature of this judgment in a unique and particular way that we haven't yet seen before. Particularly, the question is being raised here through this prayer of lament, through the questioning and the waiting and the wondering, is whether or not God is unfair or unjust to allow Judah to suffer because of their sins. Or if he's unjust to enact the curses of the covenant because of their failure, because of their disobedience. Notice that it says in verse 7, O Lord, act for your namesake. Or later in verse 21, it would say to do so for your own glory. Do not dishonor your glorious throne. Remember and do not break your covenant with us. So the concern is, God, if you allow this people to be taken into captivity, wouldn't that throw away your covenant promises? Wouldn't you be unjust for allowing this to happen? Even though we have sinned, isn't your promise still to stand? Is God unfair or unjust to allow God's people to suffer for judgment or the curses of the covenant from Deuteronomy 27 and 28 to be enacted upon those covenant breakers? Well, the conclusion, you may guess, offered by the perspective of Jeremiah as he recounts God's message is that God remains perfectly just in all of his dealings with Judah. That even as he disciplines and even as he brings upon the curses of the covenant upon the very covenant people, he is perfectly just. He does not err or sin. He cannot be claimed to be unfair or unloving. Even in his wrath and anger, he preserves his integrity, his justice. All that ultimately befalls Judah, the captivity under the Babylonians, the destruction of the temple, the looting of their kingdom, for which they will never truly reclaim glory, all that befalls them will be their own doing. God's mercy has been shunned by this people over and over and over again. And so, who else can be blamed? Or in other words, we have here in Jeremiah 14 and 15, the prophetic version of the common proverb, if you play with fire, you're going to get burned. This is the warning, really, of the largest book of Jeremiah here, but of these chapters particularly. If you play with fire, you'll get burned. If you play with God's covenant, if you play fast and loose with His commands, if you spurn Him, reject Him, and shun Him, you will invite, incur the wrath of God. For us this morning, these chapters will provide a sort of prescient warning concerning our trust 
and the confidence that we often place in other things above God, that which we call idols, that which we put above in our heart, above all things, even God. And the warning is that these things are ultimately empty and void of purpose and meaning. You may find temporary satisfaction in these things, in these pursuits, in the fulfillment of your desires. But they are ultimately empty and void of true purpose when they are treasured above God. To even good things, pursued as ultimate things, are idols and will become empty and void of their true purpose when they are treasured above God. And what we learn ultimately is that the things we put our trust in above God will be the very things that will cause our downfall before God. The very things we put our trust in will be the very things that cause our downfall. This is the pattern of Judah. God alone is our highest good. That's the theme of the Christian life. That God alone is our highest good and is fully deserving of our praise and our devotion. And so I have one simple goal this morning that I hope you would walk away with. It is simply that you would grow in your affection for God and that you would grow to treasure Christ. That's it. The goal this morning as we study Jeremiah 14 and 15 is to walk away treasuring Christ, coveting His fellowship, To do that, we're going to examine two important takeaways, highlight two important takeaways from these chapters. And hopefully as we do this, we will be led to treasure Christ more fully. Those two exhortations or those takeaways are this. First, if you're taking notes, don't blame God. That's the first exhortation. Don't blame God. That exhortation is given to Judah. Don't blame God, Judah, for what's about to happen. The second exhortation is to Jeremiah, as he laments about how difficult his ministry has been. The exhortation to him is to stand for what is right and true. So, Judah, don't blame God. Jeremiah, stand for what is right and true. And then we'll end with the final exhortation. Again, to trust and treasure Christ. Let's take those each in turn. First, the exhortation, don't blame God. I'm going to turn your attention to the text now. This first exhortation will take most of the bulk of our study this morning, verses 1 of chapter 14 through verse 9 of chapter 15. But let's look first at the first 12 verses here of chapter 14. We see that the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah concerning the drought. Judah mourns, and her gates languish. Her people lament on the ground, and the cry of Jerusalem goes up. Her nobles send their servants for water. They come to the cisterns, and they find no water. They return with their vessels empty. They are ashamed and confounded, and they cover their heads. Because of the ground that is dismayed, since there is no rain on the land, the farmers are ashamed, and they cover their heads. Even the doe in the field forsakes her newborn fawn, because there is no grass. 
The wild donkeys stand on the bare heights. They, they pant for the air like jackals. Their eyes fail because there is no vegetation. Though our iniquities testify against us, act, O Lord, for your namesake. For our backslidings are many. We have sinned against you. O you, O hope of Israel, its Savior in time of trouble, why should you be like a stranger in the land, like a traveler who turns aside to tarry for a night? Why should you be like a man confused, like a mighty warrior who cannot save? Yet you, O Lord, are in the midst of us, and we are called by your name. Do not leave us. Thus says the Lord concerning this people, They have loved to wander thus. They have not restrained their feet. Therefore the Lord does not accept them. Now He will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. The Lord said to me, Do not pray for the welfare of this people. Though they fast, I will not hear their cry. And though they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I will not accept them. But I will consume them by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Well, this exhortation, do not blame God, first is revealed through a drought of our own making. We see that there's a drought here, and this is most likely a vision of God's judgment on Judah as they continue to persist in rebellion and rejection of God. Likely not an actual drought here, but a vision Jeremiah receives from God of what will happen to them upon their continual stubborn rejection and rebellion against God. They used a drought, in other words, as an analogy to show the kind of devastation and havoc that going up against God will ultimately wreak. And this drought is meant to show the severity of their situation before God, how bad it really is and how much worse it's about to get. It will be the harsh reality of God's divine wrath on full display. And so Jeremiah is painting a picture of what happens when a drought takes over the land and there's no water, no food, there's no even moisture in the air, which these tried to pant after. There are people dying. There are children who go without water. There are animals who forsake their young because there is no sustenance and provision in the land. So this drought is an image of what will happen as Judah persists in its sin and rebellion against God in order to show the severity of their situation before God, how difficult a position they have and how much worse it will get, to demonstrate the reality of God's divine wrath with the view that they might then turn from their sin and they might indeed genuinely have heartfelt repentance, not simply lip service to God, not simply offering sacrifices, but to go to God in true contrition and penitence. Well, friends, we tend to dismiss the consequences of our actions because we think too little about what they would really be like, don't we? The goal here of this vision about a drought, the depictions of how difficult things will be when even the richest in the land who usually are able to go not without but have some sort of sustenance, even they will have no water to drink. Even they, the rich and the noble, will go and send someone to fetch water and they will find none. And shame will cover their heads because of their own iniquities. 
They are persisting in wickedness, unable to see because they are too short-sighted the harsh reality of what awaits them if they continue to persist. And we are just like them. That we dismiss the consequences of our own actions, of our own rebellion, because we think often too little about what the consequences will be if we continue in them. But this is childish behavior, isn't it? The short-sightedness of sin makes us more like children than we would like to admit. Place in front of a child a piece of cake or some carrots, and they will choose the cake every time. And yet, if they continue to eat cake, not only will they get a stomach ache, but they will find no nutrients, no sustenance. They will become sick. They don't see that they need to eat what is nutritious for them in order to survive. And indeed, they might learn to love that which is good for them. They might take delight in that which is provided to them through what God has given in the bounty of nature. Friends, we are like those children who fail to see further down the road than our own desires and our own selfish gratifications would like to admit. Even you, who are holy among us, are often too short-sighted to see the further consequences of our actions. None of us are prophets here. None of us can tell the future. But all of us have been given the wisdom by the Spirit to know what a consequence of sin will likely lead to. But when sin and temptation are too strong, they blind our vision for further down the road, restricting it only to what seems most reasonable in the moment. And we act not wisely but foolishly. We persist in sin or we give in to temptation. We gratify the flesh. We scratch that itch because we are unable to see what the reaction and the consequences would really be like. We will live then, like Judah does, in a kind of drought of our own making. For instance, brother or sister, you may feel even now that you have grown distant and cold to the Lord, that your devotions have seemed to sputter out. It's difficult to pray like you used to pray. It's difficult to read the Bible and see what is good and treasure in there. It's difficult to come together and maintain a kind of family devotion day in and day out. It's difficult to, to share the gospel and be excited and zealous for it like you once were. So you feel grown cold and weary against the Lord, unable to know that you are walking in the season of drought that you have brought upon yourself for some unchecked sin. It may be that you have not paid enough attention to the dropping water line in your own cistern. So the goal here is that we would take the warning there to Judah and say, what do we need to pay attention to now before we find ourselves in an alterable situation where God's judgment comes upon us like a drought on our land? This is a drought of our own making. So the exhortation again stands don't blame God when this happens. In the next passage here in 13 through 18, the question then must be asked, who are we listening to? Who have we followed into this situation? So it says, Jeremiah, thus I said, ah, Lord God, behold the prophets. They say to them, you shall not see the sword or shall not have famine, but I will give you Assured peace in this place. That's the, that's the prophets saying this. In other words, all, everything's going to be fine. 
Verse 14, And the Lord said to me, These prophets, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them to speak. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, a worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who prophesy in my name, although I did not send them, and who say sword and famine shall not come upon this land, by sword and famine those prophets shall be consumed. And the people to whom they prophesy shall be cast out in the streets of Jerusalem, victims of famine and sword, with none to bury them, them, their wives, their sons, and their daughters. For I will pour out evil upon them, their own evil upon them. And you shall say to them this word, Let my eyes run down with tears night and day, and let them not cease, for the virgin daughter of my people is shattered with a great wound and with a very grievous blow. For if I go out into the field, behold, those pierced by the sword. And if I enter the city, behold, the diseases of famine. For both the prophet and the priest ply their trade through the land and have no knowledge. Not only are they like those who wander in a desert wilderness with no nutrition, no sustenance, no water, no help. But they are being led out into this wilderness by those who are lying and deceiving to them. And it is not bad enough that they are bringing that upon their own heads, but that those who prophesy are also endangering those to whom they prophesy. And so we see here very clearly that false prophets promise false pleasures. That those who seek their own gain, their own followers, will often do so at the expense to those to whom they prophesy. You can often tell or sniff out a false prophet when it is those who are gaining all the influence, all the wealth, while those to whom they teach and they lead are suffering and are led to danger. Well, friends, who are you listening to? Who are the prophets that have ear in your life? Who's promising these pleasures that are ultimately leading you into a desert of drought? Notice that in a turn of irony, where it might be hubris, that those will fall by the very words that they rejected there in verse 15. Those who promise no sword, no famine, will the, themselves be struck down by the sword and by their famine. Notice that it says, to their own hurt. It is their own knowledge that does this. In verse 16, I will pour out their own evil upon them. Again, that exhortation is, don't blame God. So, brother, sister, what are the false visions and the deceptions that you might contend with today? What are those lies and deceits that are tempting you to believe and to follow? There are many teachers. There are many gurus. Not many of them are like fathers or mothers who care for us, tend to us, shepherd us. What are the false visions and deceptions that you might be tempted to believe, that you allow to speak and have the ear, perhaps, of your own children? What is informing the decisions you make as a family, as a Christian? We need not step on too many toes here. I suspect many of us, if we took an examination in stock of our lives, may find one or two many voices that are speaking not truth, but lies. 
And let, let us not deceive ourselves into thinking that we are so impervious to temptation, impervious to, to being led astray, that we may allow ourselves at times to hear or see or be privy to these kinds of deceptions. Friends, through the Spirit, we are often stronger than we think. But in our ignorance and in our pride, we are often weaker than we would imagine. Be careful whose voice you allow into your life. To that extent, John will tell those who read his own epistles to test everything. Test the spirits. See if they are of Christ. Even those who preach from a pulpit like this, you must test by the word of God. This may surprise you, friends, but I am not infallible. That I often make mistakes, and not simply in my own life, but even as I teach to exposit Scripture, I will not be perfect. It is your responsibility, Christian, to take what I say and test it and verify it. Even those that God has given to you as a gift, you must act like those Bereans in Acts and see if what the Scripture says is really true. So who are you listening to? If you are led astray by these false teachers and you willingly follow them step by step, you cannot blame God when you find yourself in the very same trap that they have laid for you and a part of the same punishment and judgment they receive falls upon you as well. Do not blame God. How do we begin to avoid this? We must then acknowledge our foolishness. Judah must acknowledge their folly. Look in verse 19. Have you utterly rejected Judah? This is a prayer of lament and complaint to God. Have you utterly rejected Judah? Does your soul loathe Zion? Why have you struck us down so that there is no healing for us? We looked for peace, but no good came for a time of healing. But behold, terror, because they've trusted in all the wrong things. We, verse 20, acknowledge our wickedness, O Lord and the iniquity of our fathers, for we have sinned against you. Do not spurn us for your namesake. Do not dishonor your glorious throne. Remember and do not break your covenant with us. Are there any among the false gods of the nations that can bring rain? Or can the heavens give showers? Are you not he, O Lord, our God? We set our hope on you, for you do all these things. Again, look earlier in verses 7 through 9, the same kind of prayer and acknowledgement of their foolishness. Though our iniquities testify against us, act, O Lord, for your name's sake, for our backslidings are many, and we have sinned against you. O hope, our hope, a Savior in our time of trouble, do not leave us, it says the end of verse 9. So we must acknowledge our folly if we are to avoid the temptation to blame God for the judgment and discipline we may experience by His hand. Notice in verse 10 that wandering is a kind of rejection. His response to a kind of prayer and a kind of complaint is this. They have loved to wander like this. They have loved to hear my voice, listen and read the words of my revelation and despise it. It says that they have not restrained their feet. They have not kept their feet on the path. This kind of wandering is rejection of God's good, faithful, and wise word. And that rejection, we learn, is sin. Again, look in verse 7. 
Our backslidings are many. We have sinned against you. Verse 20, we acknowledge our wickedness in the iniquities of our Father, for we have sinned against you. So not only do we wander from God's word, his provision of guidance in our life, like, the Ju- like Judah has, but that kind of wandering and rejection is sin against God. It's a rebellion and a rejection of God. And so what must happen? We must reestablish the trust of God in our lives. Again, look in verse 8. You, O, you, o hope of Israel, and its Savior in time of trouble. Remember what God is like. Or again in verse 22. Are there any among the false gods of the nations that can bring rain? Can the heavens bring rains? The God of the heavens? The answer is no. Are you not he, O Lord our God? For you can do all of these things. Therefore, we set our hope on you. If you desire not to blame God for your circumstances or to fall under the the discipline and the correcting hand of God, you must first acknowledge your foolishness before the Lord and the wandering of your feet and reestablish your trust. Affirm that God is alone worthy. He is alone powerful. That these false gods which you have been led to believe in to trust in. These idols of your hearts must be thrown down, for they are dead and are worthless. But it's not simply enough to intellectually assert that God is more powerful than dead idols. You must then throw yourselves upon God's mercy. Throw yourselves upon God's mercy. Again, there at the end of verse 9, what did it say? Oh, Lord, you are in the midst of us. We are called by your name. Do not leave us. Do not forsake us. Do not abandon us. Or there in verse 21, remember and do not break your covenant with us. You throw yourselves upon God's mercy, for you are rightly deserving of the wrath of God if you are sin. And yet if you throw yourselves upon the mercy of God, He may, He may extend it to you. So we must acknowledge our foolishness against God. As we round out chapter 14 and work into the first part of 15, we see then that there is deep sin with shallow repentance. And it says then that the Lord said to me, though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my heart would not turn towards this people. Send them out of my sight and let them go. When they ask you, where shall we go? You shall say to them thus, says the Lord. Those who are for pestilence to pestilence, and those who are for the sword to sword, and those who are for the famine to famine, and those who are for captivity to captivity. Well, I will appoint over them four kinds of destroyers, declare the Lord. the sword to kill, the dogs to tear, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field of the earth to devour and destroy. I will make to them a horror of all the kingdoms of the earth because of what Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, did in Jerusalem. It was he, this king, who had ultimately led Israel into idolatry. Verse 5, Who will have pity on you, O Jerusalem? Or who will grieve for you? Who will turn aside to ask you about your welfare? You have rejected me, declares the Lord. You keep going backwards, so I have stretched out my hand against you and destroyed you. I am weary of relenting. I have winnowed them down with a winnowing fork in the gates of the land. I have bereaved them. I have destroyed my people. They did not turn from their ways. I have made their widows more in number than the sands of the sea. I have brought against the mothers of young men a destroyer at noonday. I have made anguish and terror fall upon them suddenly. 
She who bore seven sons have grown feeble. She has fainted away. Her son went down while it was yet day, and she has been shamed and disgraced. And the rest of them I will give to the sword before their enemies, declares the Lord. Notice that this is a deep-rooted, deep-seated sinfulness met with a shallow kind of repentance that has ultimately incurred God's wrath here. That there is both a systemic kind of sin and a personal nature as well. There in verse 4, it says that the blame really begins here with their, their corporate walk into idolatry. Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, led Israel into sin to embrace the idols and the idolatry of other nations by going after the flesh and these idols. And the system then within the government, within the people, began to favor and promote this kind of idolatry. And so sinfulness was now at a systemic level. Even the worship in the temple itself was polluted by such sinfulness. And yet it won't be simply enough to blame the king, though as the king leads, so does the nation. But it is a personal sin and a personal failure to repent. For he says, you have rejected me, verse 6. You keep going backwards. You fail to repent over and over and over again. Look at the end of verse 7. You did not turn from your way. So we cannot blame God for such punishment, correction, discipline, and judgment. The exhortation here is very clear. Do not blame God when he disciplines his people for their sin. Now, as a note, notice Jeremiah does not here try to give a theological treaty about how human responsibility and divine sovereignty work together. The point is to be very clear that whatever we say and believe about God's sovereignty over even our sinful actions, that we are guilty, that God does not share in the blame, that he cannot be blamed, and that all of the guilt and the culpability for sins lies squarely and completely on you and I as sinners. We cannot blame God. We cannot even blame it on the devil. We cannot blame it on another person. Our sin is ours alone to bear. This is the lesson and the exhortation that we must resist the urge to blame God. And then he goes on in the rest of chapter 15. Jeremiah then complains to the Lord about how difficult this message is to preach. You can imagine, we saw last week, that even his own family sought to take his life as he learned of a plot to kill him. The exhortation to Jeremiah will be to stand for what is right and true. He says, Woe is me, my mother, that you bore me a man of strife and contention to the whole land. I have not lent nor have I borrowed, yet all of them curse me. And so Jeremiah's lament is that this has been very difficult and that I have, I have contention and disfavor with everybody in the land. I am not popular for preaching this, O Lord. And it seems even that it would be better if I wasn't even born than to have this kind of scorn and disapproval. Perhaps Jeremiah's faith is wavering somewhat in a difficult calling in ministry. But what we learn here, and when Jeremiah is exhorted to stand for what is right and true, that he must understand that faithfulness to God will have a price, but it also has a reward. Faithfulness to God will have a price, but it also has a reward. Listen to what God says. The Lord says in verse 11, Have I not set you free for their good? 
Have I not pleaded for you before the enemy in the time of trouble and in the time of distress? Can one break iron from the north and bronze? Your wealth and your treasures I will give as spoil without price for all your sins throughout all your territory. I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you did not know. For in my anger a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. What is God saying? Jeremiah, I will keep you. And those who come against you will meet their end. Even those you prophesy against, even Judah, your own people, cannot harm you and will not destroy you. God is with his people. God is with Jeremiah, his servant. He says, in other words, faithfulness will be difficult and will cost you. It will cost you ostracization. It will cost you difficulty. It will cost you perhaps your own life. But I will be for your good and I will act justly in my own way. They will get, in other words, what they deserve. Trust me. He says, stand for what is right and true. So then Jeremiah prays. He trusts God and he prays in verse 15. Oh Lord, you know, remember me and visit me and take vengeance for me on my persecutors. In your forbearance, patience, take me not away. Know that for your sake I bear reproach. Your words were found and I ate them. Your words became to me a joy. Listen, and the delight of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. I did not sit in the company of revelers, nor did I rejoice. I sat alone because your hand was upon me, for you had filled me with indignation. Why is my pain unceasing and my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? Will you be to me like a deceitful brook that waters like fail? Notice the complaint here is that, God, then please do what you have said you will do. You have said you will work for my good. You have freed me for my good. Oh, Lord, act according to your word, this prayer that God would be just. And so the Lord comes and he promises in verse 19. If you return, I will restore you, and you shall stand before me. Be faithful, count the cost, and receive your reward. If you utter what is precious and not what is worthless, you shall be as my mouth. They shall turn to you, but you shall not turn to them. In other words, I will protect you as you do this, Jeremiah. Stand for what is right and true. Verse 20, I will make you to this people a fortified wall of bronze. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail over you, for I am with you to save you and deliver you, declares the Lord. I will deliver you out of the hand of the wicked and redeem you from the grasp of the ruthless. This promise then, is a precious one to Jeremiah as he seeks to be faithful to God's calling. Remember, back in chapter 1 and 2, that Jeremiah was called, set aside even before he was born, to be a prophet of the nations, to be like a wall of iron and bronze, a mouthpiece for God. He is to eat, feast upon God's word, that is to be his delight of his heart, so that he may preach what is precious and true. And so he says, stand before me, even if no one else does. Stand for what is right and true, for faithfulness has a price, but it also has a reward. Well, these are the two exhortations from the text. Not blame God and to stand for God. Let's really end here with a final exhortation. Remember I said that the goal this morning was simply that you would walk away treasuring Christ. And that's really the last exhortation here. Trust and treasure. That's it. If you want to sum up the Christian life, 
It is to trust and treasure Christ. Write that down. Commit it to memory. I don't know. Tattoo it on your body somewhere. Trust and treasure. Just consider, as you take these warnings and these exhortations, put yourself in the place of Judah. What might you learn from this exhortation? Well, in the place of Judah, you might come to understand that God is wise. Trusting and treasuring God comes to understand that God is wise, wiser than all. Therefore, you must not be fooled by the wisdom of the age, by those who would lead you astray. That which the world counts wise, you know God counts as foolish. And often what the world counts as foolish, God has already counted wise. Jesus, of course, is the ultimate example of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul says that the world considers the foolishness of God because Jesus suffered and died. But this is really the power and the wisdom of God. And all that the world considers wise is really stupidity before the Lord if you reject what he has ultimately declared to be true wisdom. The death of Jesus is the wisdom of God shown in display, not like the wisdom of this age, but the wisdom of God. And so to trust and treasure Christ is to look to him as all wise, but not simply wise, but also that God is just, that his righteousness is a tool for your good and not for your harm. It is only against you when you have sinned in unrepentance. His righteousness becomes a tool for harm. But those who seek God's wisdom and trusts and treasures God's justice, that righteousness becomes a tool for your good because you trust and treasure that justice to overcome your enemies. Again, this justice is seen most clearly on the cross of Christ where the justice of God is poured out on Jesus as he suffers wrath for your sin. But so is the grace of God displayed on the cross. Again, as you consider the example of Judah and the exhortation not to blame God, you must learn to trust and treasure God because ultimately He is your leader. He is your Savior. He will guide you with His power and His presence. Over and over again, the prayer is, do not leave us, nor forsake us. Remember your covenant. Be with us, O God. May your presence remain. God is our leader, friends. He is here even in the midst of us now. Trust and treasure God as your leader. Christ Himself stands before us and calls us to follow him as disciples. We lead in the laying down of our life for his sake. We lead in the obedience of God because we treasure him above all else. We lead in the persistence of his glory and proclamation above all because he is worthy to be praised. We do all this looking to Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith. But we also can consider ourselves in the place of Jeremiah. We can consider that we can trust and treasure God as Jeremiah is called to because God is good. God does not seek to do you harm. His covenant is to do you good. In the Old Testament, the covenant came with curses as well as blessings. But under the new, Jesus has suffered all the curse of our sins, all the brokenness of the covenant of the old, so that what is given to us in the new is only blessing in Christ. So God seeks in Christ only to do us good because he is good. Not only is God good, but he is now our deliverer. 
The promise here is that I will deliver you, it says in verse 21, out of the hand of the wicked to redeem you from the grasp of the ruthless. See, he has freed you from the bondage of sin. He has freed you from captivity against the evil one. When John says that we are under the sway or under the control of the enemy, it means that what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, that you were following the prince of the power of the air. You were in step with the generation of evil like the rest of mankind, a children of wrath. But God has set you free from all this. In Ephesians 2 verse 4 it says, But God, being rich in mercy has made you alive together in Christ. God is your deliverer, and Christ is now the new captain of your soul who has set you free from the bondage of sin by himself becoming subject to it for a time on the cross. It says in Corinthians, that he who knew no sin became sin so that you would become the righteousness of God. But lastly, to trust and treasure Christ means to look and treasure God as faithful, for he is with us always. You may waver and stumble in your walk with God. Your trust and your treasure will indeed fall from time and time, but to remember that God is faithful and that his promise not only has been to deliver you from sin, but to be with you in all things always, like in Psalm 23, to walk with you through the valley of the shadow of death so that you have a feast in the presence of your enemies before God. He is faithful always. He says in verse 20, I am with you to save you and deliver you, declares the Lord. Or at the end of Matthew 28, go and make disciples, for I am with you until the end of the age. This is the very precious promise of the gospel for those who are in Christ, those who have been delivered from the bondage of sin because of Jesus' death on the cross for your sin, those who trust and treasure Christ above all in their life, even the difficult circumstances that arise, even the idols and the wisdom of the world, all is, is forsaken because God is faithful to guide us, to lead us in his goodness, his justice, and his wisdom. Let him be for you the treasure of your heart. Let him, his word be the delight of your soul and let his son Jesus be the captain of your life your deliverer your savior above all from trust in him walk in him and stand for what is right and true and look to God as your treasure above all else let's pray father thank you for your word much more to be said and yet I pray that the goal that I stated earlier that our hearts would be stirred up in affection to treasure Jesus will be accomplished through the work of your Spirit. For I have not the power nor the elegance to stir up the affections of the soul or the heart, but your Spirit does. So I do pray that, God, what was said feebly would be used powerfully by your Spirit to say that all of us could say, Christ is our treasure. That our worth ultimately is not in anything that we own. It's not in our strength. It's not in what we accomplish. It's not in ourselves. Our worth will not be in what we can amass for ourselves in this life, but our, our satisfaction and our boast will be in Christ, the deliverer of our souls, the keeper of our life. We thank you for all this. As always, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. My worth is not in what I all sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, 
please visit us at foundationfxbg.com. My worth is not in skill or name, in win or lose, in pride or shame, but in the blood of Christ I float at the cross. I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure. Wellspring of my soul, I will trust in Him.